It's Tuesday, February 28th. A college education will stick with you forever till debt do you part. We start here. In a case that could reshape 40 million American bank accounts, the Supreme Court hears a challenge to student loan forgiveness. How have they been injured by the federal government erasing federal debt? So which states don't want this to go forward, and do they have a case? Another set of benefits set to be gone in a snap. This money is going away at a time when families are really struggling. Why millions of Americans are about to lose access to grocery money and government investigations into COVID go viral. Not everyone in the intelligence community or across the government necessarily has come to a consensus view here. Three years later, did COVID come from a Chinese lab after all? From ABC News, this is Start Here. I'm Brad Milkey. Using the authority Congress granted the Department of Education, we will forgive $10,000 in outstanding federal student loans. When President Biden announced last year he would wipe out billions of dollars of student debt, it was a potentially life-changing moment for many, many Americans. I was telling my coworkers, like, hey, look at this. I'm like free of debt. I'm free of debt. I was really hopeful. Um, it almost seemed like too good to be true. Here is the education department for giving loans 10 to 20,000 bucks at a time. The big question, though, was whether this type of decision was even legal. I'm completely confident my plan is legal, but right now it's on hold because of these lawsuits. Well, today in Washington, the U.S. Supreme Court will consider the case of several Republican-led states who say, sorry, it's not up to Joe Biden when your debts are paid. ABC senior Washington reporter Devin Dwyer covers the court. He'll be in the room later today. Devin, first off, how big is this case from where you sit? You use the term life-changing, Brad. Well, if this goes through, this could be truly life-changing for up to 40 million Americans. Um, If you've gone to college, you've taken out loans, especially federal student loans, you know the pain of those loans and the interest payments. Uh, And the White House says 26 million people applied right out of the gate. 16 million were approved. That's before the court's put all of this on hold for this case today. Um, so it just, just in sheer terms, it's a lot of people. It's a lot of money, half a trillion dollars uh, to the federal government over 30 years. Did you apply? I did apply, yeah. I talked to Anna Bain. She's a sophomore at the University of Missouri, communications major. She's working at Starbucks. Um, she's only in her second year. She's racked up $12,000 in federal student loans. I spend a lot of time <laughs> worrying about Um, how I'm going to pay that money back. I asked her, listen, why do you think taxpayers should foot that bill? Why do you think it's fair uh, you agreed to these loans to have the federal government wipe some of them clean? I mean, I think that it is a fair point to raise. I think that everyone has a right to say how their taxes are being spent. Um, But I also believe taxes are for the greater good and this is for the greater good. And why are the states themselves suing? Because like that is a thing you have to prove, right? Like why it's you who's got a problem with this. Yeah, you know, every case pretty much that comes to the Supreme Court has some debate over the issue of standing. In other words, are you injured? Do you actually suffer some harm to be able to allow you to bring a case to sue? We don't normally pay attention to that a lot. It's not that sexy. But in this case, it's actually a really big deal, Brad. The question on the table is, can these six states actually bring this case? Can they sue the federal government? How have they been injured by the federal government erasing federal debt? Why did you bring this case as attorney general? Well, there's 
A couple of reasons. The first is Joe Biden had no legal authority whatsoever. We put that question to Missouri Senator Eric Schmidt. He's the former Republican attorney general of that state that brought this case to begin with. Interesting answer. He said, look, it's expensive. It adds to the national debt. You know, our my feeling on this has always been it's not fair to the waitress or the truck driver to have to pay for the the debt of the guy who got, you know, the theater degree, the tenured professor. Those things all may be well and true, but still you're going to have to prove today at the Supreme Court that Missouri itself and these other states are actually harmed directly, financially, by the cancellation of loans. It's all about what's called speculation. One other notable point about that, legal scholars on both ends of the spectrum, conservatives and liberals, uh, have written the Supreme Court in amicus briefs, strongly telling the court that this is a mistake. Federal court can't decide any issue at any time for any reason. I talked to uh, Josh Blackman. He's a right-leaning uh, law professor at the South Texas College of Law. And he said, look, uh, I don't like the Biden debt forgiveness plan, but Missouri doesn't have a case here. And if the court lets this stand, uh, it could set a very dangerous precedent. Well, yeah, I was going to say, I could be harmed theoretically if the government debt goes up. Like, that could happen. You know, I have things to say about that. But that doesn't necessarily mean I get to sue over executive orders. That's right. I mean, and if that is the new standard, and that's one of the reasons why this case is so significant, um, is that it could open the door to states much more frequently and freely suing the federal government over all any host of policies, things that they find um, unfair, expensive. Um, we Americans can disagree reasonably on all these things, but uh, it doesn't necessarily mean it, it should end up in court, certainly the Supreme Court, um, and standing is a really big issue here. And the state of Missouri's case is a convoluted one. I think the reason why this case is before the Supreme Court and why Missouri and the other states are ultimately going to win is because Missouri has a loan servicing organization called Mohila that derives revenue from interest. They're home to the nation's largest loan servicer, and these are loans that aren't just from Missouri, but it's called Mohila, the Missouri Higher Education Loan Authority, uh, $148 billion portfolio of student loan debt. This is federal student loan debt, so this is a lot of money, 5 million accounts. Mohila is an independent agency. So how is how does Missouri have standing? Well, the attorney general represents the the interests of the state of Missouri, and that's why we originally brought the case, and that's why. But isn't Mohila separate? Uh, well, um, the state of Missouri derives revenue from income from Mohila, which is student loan debt, and so um, those interest payments are certainly part of. Uh, the interests of the state of Missouri and the taxpayers of the state of Missouri. What Missouri is alleging is that by wiping a lot of those loans off Mohila's books, Mohila will not be able to contribute to a state fund uh, to make improvements to Missouri colleges and universities. And under state law in Missouri, Mohila every year is supposed to be chipping into this fund to fix up colleges and, and universities. Uh, turns out they haven't been chipping into the fund for 10 years. Um, and so there's some question as to, well, wait a second, uh, is this really actually going to harm Mohila? Is this then going to harm Missouri? It's speculative whether Mohila will ever actually pay any money. And the court may very well say, look, no money's been paid out in a very long time. We don't know if money will be paid out in the future. This is too speculative of an injury. Or the court could say the chance that even $1 might be paid at some point in the future might be enough. The Biden administration says, look, that isn't the kind of concrete, direct injury to a state uh, that justifies this kind of a lawsuit, and therefore they should be turned away. We'll see what the justices uh, ultimately decide. Hey, Devin, what's the Biden administration going to have to answer for here? Because I, I get what you're saying about standing and who is who's actually hurt here. But it doesn't sound crazy to me to say 
Something this big, as fundamental as whether you have to pay back loans that you decided to take on in this country, like maybe that shouldn't be the thing a single man gets to decide. What What is the White House going to have to answer for? Yeah, the second part of this case, Brad, is, is the legality of all this. Under federal education law, can the Education Department, President Biden, waive the student loans unilaterally for all these Americans? I'm never going to apologize for helping working class and middle class families recover from the economic crisis created by the pandemic. The president's team argues that they have emergency authority under the pandemic, a national emergency, to make sure, under the law, to make sure that people aren't made worse off financially uh, because of the emergency. And they argue that wiping away these loans is the only way and the best way to make sure that so many of these student debtors um, aren't made worse off because of all the, the tumult that we saw after COVID hit. So there's going to be some debate over what the law says, what it means, uh, and whether the president actually has the authority to do this. Like you said, potential for the Supreme Court to go, eh, I mean, sorry, compelling arguments, but but these states at this time shouldn't be the ones in this courtroom. And you can kind of just kick the can down the road. All right. Uh, Devin Dwyer, we'll see what happens later today. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Brad. Next up on Start Here, if you had to, could you reduce your grocery bill by 80%? Some families are going to have to find out. We're back in a bit. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Have you ever wondered what you would do with an extra hour in your day? I think about this all the time. I'm like, I would be so productive. I'd exercise more, or I'd read a book, or I'd take a nap, like restore myself. We often find ourselves yearning for these extra hours, but the real question is, what would you do if you were making yourself a priority? Well, how about therapy? It can help you discover what's important so you can make the most of your time. If you've ever benefited from therapy, you know how transformative it can be. It's not just for those who have experienced major trauma. Therapy empowers you to learn positive coping skills, set boundaries, and become the best version of yourself. If you're considering starting therapy, you should give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and tailored to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire. You'll be matched with a licensed therapist. And here's the beauty of it. You can switch therapists if you're not finding the right fit. No additional charge. Take the first step. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash start here today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash start here. With daylight saving time upon us, we're looking forward to more daylight and longer days from March through November. And while setting our clocks forward gives us the illusion of more time, it doesn't necessarily help businesses find qualified candidates any sooner. Fear not, there is a solution. ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter is your 24-7 hiring partner working tirelessly to connect you with the right candidate. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, it gets distributed to over 100 job sites, ensuring you reach a diverse pool of qualified individuals. Their smart technology scans thousands of resumes, matching you with people whose skills perfectly align with your job requirements. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a Quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash start here. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash start here. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Student loans are not the only huge issue affecting Americans' finances today. You might have heard of the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, known as SNAP. Well, in recent years, states have been relying more and more on SNAP benefits to help people who are food insecure. Well, later tonight, many of those benefits are about to go off a cliff. ABC's Alexis Christophorus covers the economy. Alexis, can you explain what these benefits are? 
Sure, Brad. So about 42 million people in this country uh, get SNAP benefits on a monthly basis. And what they really are is just another name for food stamps. So it's food assistance that low-income families get to help them buy groceries every month. We cannot, will not let people go hungry. The government decided to boost those SNAP benefits to give people some extra money every month to help make ends meet. And so for millions of Americans um, who were never on the SNAP program, their first experience with it has been during the pandemic. They're used to receiving a certain amount of money every month. And uh, beginning uh, March 1st, they're going to be getting less money. We open our country back up and soon we'll end the public health emergency. And that's because the Biden administration is getting ready to declare the official end to the pandemic. Mm. Uh, That's going to happen in May. And we've been seeing uh, different states end the program. Already 18 states have ended their uh, extra SNAP benefit program. 32 more states and three jurisdictions are going to follow suit uh, on March 1st. And what this is going to do is on, on a minimum basis, it's going to take about $95 a month away from uh, SNAP benefits, but for families with, um, you know, depending on the family size, their income, and other criteria, uh, some families might get hundreds of dollars less a month to spend on groceries. Well, and so if that goes away, I mean, how does that play out in the coming weeks or months? Like you actually spoke to a family that's been watching this deadline loom. I spoke to this family, the Hardys, um, and they have two sons. Uh, one's three and one's 10. They're in Marshfield, Wisconsin. Their 10-year-old is actually autistic, so he has special needs. And a lot of the money they get every month from SNAP goes towards his unique food needs. The prices keep going the way they're going, and we can't even make it work now. What is it going to be like six months from now? Their uh, payment is going to plunge. I mean, it's going to go from $760 a month uh, throughout the pandemic that they've been receiving to just $200 a month come March. We're really going to struggle. We're going to have to end up going back to cheaper, you know, noodles, processed stuff, because the, the meat, the dairy, fruits and veggies, it's expensive. I spoke to the mom, Deanna Hardy. She said that they're going to be stocking up on a bunch of expensive things now with this last big check they got from the government. They love salmon and seafood, Mm. eggs. They're going to try and freeze as much as they can and sort of ration it uh, in the coming weeks and months as that check gets smaller. Well, and so I got to imagine that family and, and millions of others across the country are probably thinking, why? Like, why now? Why not if this program is providing so much help to people who need it so much? Why does it have to be curtailed so abruptly? A lot of people are questioning the timing of this, Brad, because even though inflation is easing, uh, food inflation is still very high. We've got food prices up 10 percent year over year. You know, bread alone up 15 percent more. Uh, Eggs, we know, up 70 percent. Part of that, of course, is because of the avian flu. But the point being that this money is going away at a time when families are really struggling. It's heartbreaking because, like, you go see something as that what used to be like only like two, three dollars is now like seven to ten dollars. And I'm just I'm like, how are people eating? And some are questioning, you know, why can't the government extend these benefits right now? A lot of people are appealing to their states to close that federal funding gap. Mm. And um, I can tell you only New Jersey so far has agreed to extend those benefits. We don't know for how long, but they are going to be kicking in some state funds uh, to make up the difference. 
What I can commit to is that USDA is going to continue to do what they can uh, to deal with a real issue, to deal with child poverty, to deal with the issue that millions of Americans across the country uh, have to worry about feeding their children. Now, from the uh, government's uh, point of view, they at the outset, they said this was never going to be a permanent program. It was meant to be temporary and only until the government declared the, um, the pandemic over. What they are going to do, though, which is really good news, with the money that they were giving to folks, is that they're going to turn it into a permanent program to provide uh, meals for low-income families during the summer months, meals that those children would normally be getting uh, during school. They'll now be able to get them year-round with this extra money. All right. Alexis Christophorus, really useful. Thank you so much. Thank you. The COVID pandemic is close to three years old, and while most metrics have been trending downwards in recent weeks, that's good news, we're still averaging hundreds of deaths ascribed to COVID every day. Untold Americans are still contracting symptoms, some of which last far beyond a few weeks. And yet for a virus that's caused this much death, this much destruction and heartache, it's still shocking how little we know about it, including perhaps the most basic question of all, Where did it even come from? As this virus continues to ravage the world, there are also questions about how this all started. This has obviously been a horrendous pandemic, and we need to understand where it came from. This weekend, The Wall Street Journal and The New York Times each published new reporting showing that while several American agencies have been investigating the origins of SARS-CoV-2, that evidence is leading them to slightly different judgments. And according to these reports, at least one agency was moved to believe recently that COVID sprang from a Chinese lab rather than a Chinese market. And although they're saying their lab leak theory comes with low confidence, this was serious enough that Admiral John Kirby from the National Security Council felt the need to address this yesterday. Not everyone in the intelligence community or across the government necessarily has come to a consensus view here. Let's go to ABC's chief medical correspondent, Dr. Jennifer Ashton. Dr. Ashton, this has not been confirmed by ABC News. I want to highlight that. But the Journal and the Times are basically reporting that in this new classified setting, the Energy Department came forward and, and told the administration, hey, we've changed our position. We now think that COVID really came out of a lab in China. What's changed? Well, what's happening, Brad, is that when you get a couple of different agencies in a room together and you ask them all to weigh in on the results of their investigations as to the origins of SARS-CoV-2, you get a couple of different explanations for that. Um, And that's what we're seeing here. It's a very complex issue. It's still not resolved. This latest from the U.S. Energy Department will still not resolve it. And they themselves are saying that their opinion or their findings, if you will, is based on quote-unquote low confidence. However, there's still kind of a a consensus, if you will, that overwhelming data points to the fact that COVID-19 was a natural occurrence. The historical basis for pandemics evolving naturally from an animal reservoir is extremely strong. And it's for that reason that we felt that something similar like this has a much higher likelihood. However, Not everyone thinks that. Um, So there's an issue of a question of whether or not a lab leak is a possibility. Um, And, you know, we, we may never know the answer to that. And remember, when you hear the word lab leak, then you have to dive into, is it intentional or is it accidental? 
Right. I was going to say, can you walk us through like what the possibilities would even be? Because when we say natural transmission, what does that mean? And lab leak, what what do those options look like? Yeah. So basically, you know, a vi- remember, let's go back to coronavirus 101. This is not a new virus. Mm-hmm. This strain is new. That's why it was initially called the novel SARS-CoV-2 right. or novel coronavirus. So we know that there have been several coronaviruses, some of which infect animals, some of which infect humans. Um, and natural occurrence just means that out there in the real world, it evolved, i.e. mutated, and it jumped species. Um, there's been a lot of talks about bats, a lot of talks about possibly ferrets, but whatever it was, it went from one animal species to another and then made its jump to human beings. Zoonotic disease outbreak is going to happen when you have humans in contact with an animal that's been infected with a virus. It could be handling the animal. It could be eating the animal. It could be the process of preparing that animal for market. Lab origin is that research was being done on coronavirus family viruses, which again, there have been many, um, and research is ongoing in labs all around the world on every type of virus. So that shouldn't raise any eyebrows. And uh, either someone working in that lab became infected through an accidental breach in protocol, and then they took that virus out into the real world, out into the community, and it spread that way. Or there was an accidental lab malfunction of some sort, you know, a power outage, a generator went down, something with air filtration, and it got out that way. Or then Mm. there's intentional lab leak. And Mm. uh, I certainly haven't seen any compelling evidence to that effect. No one knows, not even I, 100% at this point, which is the reason why we are in favor of further investigation. I've spoken to Dr. Anthony Fauci about this on numerous occasions, and he is open-minded that many different origins are on the table, and we may never learn the truth, uh, largely because the Chinese government hasn't been very transparent or cooperative with the global investigation. Right. And that's what seems so frustrating, that if you wanted to get to the bottom of this, you would need kind of unfettered access to Chinese labs, to Chinese virologists. And it doesn't appear that that's coming. Uh, I guess the other question to ask you, Dr. Jen, is does it matter like to you as a physician, to you as chief medical correspondent? Like how important is it that we know not just sort of what the effects of the virus are, but where it came from in the first place. Where does that rank? Oh, I care a lot, Brad. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I bet that most doctors and scientists around the world share that opinion. And the disease detectives may spend the next hundred years trying to solve this mystery. As the population increases, as we encroach upon areas with wild animals, as we continue to have climate change, we will see more viruses jumping from animals to humans, and we're going to see more disease emergence events. I think that when you experience what the world has experienced with SARS-CoV-2, we need to learn our scientific lessons from this Mm. uh, so that we can prevent anything from happening like this again in the near future and that we can learn um, about how this virus does its damage. And without knowing how it started, its birth story, if you will, um, we're always going to be hampered to that end and that effect. All right. That is Dr. Jennifer Ashton. Dr. Jen, thank you so much. Really helpful. Thanks, Brad. 
All right, one more quick break. When we come back, you gotta catch them all. All the Z's, I mean. One last thing is next. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. And one last thing. You might not have known it, but yesterday was Pokemon Day. It marked 27 years since the popular video games debuted in Japan, and here, on their 27th birthday, the main character, Ash, officially retired, marking a new era in the world of capturing cartoon animals. Now, Bulbasaur, I choose you! Bulbasaur! But in recent years, this anime-slash-card-game-slash-TV cartoon universe has set its sights squarely on smartphones. Pokemon Go took players into the real world in which you can capture augmented reality creatures appearing in your neighborhood. Well, yesterday, creators revealed their newest invention, Pokemon Sleep. It's easy to play on this island. All you have to do is get a good night's sleep. In a cute video, makers describe a new app that will track your rest. Based on your sleep habits, you'll wake up to discover that different Pokemon have visited you in the course of the night. The leader of this band of snoozers is, of course, Pokemon Snorlax. Snorlax! Which, who doesn't like to imagine a cute little Charmander snuggling up to them while they doze? But it makes you stop and wonder, why would Pokemon want to be part of my sleep cycle? For one, the company said new features are coming that will use your sleep escapades as part of its game, Pokemon Go. If you can get access to new Pokemon overnight, what's the first thing you want to do when you wake up? Get on that app, baby. You now got to catch them all 24 hours a day. It also clears the way for new products. In fact, one of the programs announced yesterday, Pokemon Go Plus Plus, no, I'm not making that up, comes with this little physical Pokeball that will play you Pikachu sound effects that'll let you go hunting without your phone, along with other benefits that perhaps could come for a price. It also has a button you can press when you wake up, in case you didn't want your phone right next to your head every evening. And that information about your sleep habits could really be the grand prize here. Sleep trackers are considered treasure troves of data that could be mined, perhaps sold. Companies would love to advertise specifically to customers they know stay up past one in the morning or get restless around 5 a.m., Pokemon Sleep could have all that in family-friendly packaging. In a world where lots of apps are vying for more info about you, they need you to choo-choo-choo-choose them. We reached out to the reps for Pokemon, by the way. No response yet to our request for more information about how the sleep tracking would even work. Like, if, it's, if it just measures when you're on your phone, like I'm not just tossing and turning with a phone in my hand. More on all these stories at abcnews.com or the ABC News app. I'm Brad Milky. See you tomorrow.